meet Hannah and Macy down here. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Revelation 5 while they're coming on down. And if you would, please stand to honor the reading of God's word. Uh, I think what we're about to read will sound uh, very familiar to you. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one. In heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, and worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus was found worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. Thank you that because he is worthy, that all of history has meaning and it has purpose, that it's headed somewhere, and that you have not lost control of the narrative. And so today, as we said last week, allow this passage of scripture to produce awe and wonder in our hearts, and that we would leave here with a bigger picture of you than when we came in the room. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'll say this in, in, in opening, this is a lot better view than I had this time last year. Last time, year at this time, it was me, Chad, Carol, Mariah, and Joe in this room alone. That was it. Uh, a year ago today, we made the decision to voluntarily shut down our worship services and go online. And so this is a lot better view, okay? So I'm, I'm happy to say that. But I also want to say that since then, um, we've seen a lot of changes over the last year, haven't we? I mean, we, we've had massive shifts in government policy. 
Uh, we have a new president. Uh, you have new ideas about gender norms and things being pushed uh, all over the place, it seems. Uh, you have a divisive spirit that just seems to infect each and every one of us. I don't think any of us are immune to it, uh, especially when, when you look around. Um, and it doesn't really matter the topic. I made the joke the other day that I could get on Twitter this afternoon and be like, well, I like chocolate chip cookies. And all of a sudden, here we go, right? Right? Like, like all of a sudden, I'm a misogynist because I probably made my wife go make me them chocolate chip cookies, right? So you don't like women, right? Well, then why has it got to be chocolate chips, Byron, huh? You got a problem with chocolate, right? right? And, and on and on we could go, right? I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying is that we have this divisive spirit that seems to just infected everything that we do. And so we look at the world and we're saddened by what we see and we wonder, hey, are we going to get out of the mess that we seem to have made for ourselves? Right? Anybody feel that way? I don't think we're the first generation to feel that way, though. I think sometimes we, we kind of just get locked in this vacuum and think it only uh, applies to our generation, and we forget that past generations have felt the same way. I, I've been driving my wife crazy because I've been watching Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam. And if any of you remember that time, you remember that a lot of people felt the same way during that time period. The, the rate of change in America was unbelievable. You had hatred, you had divisiveness over, are you for the war, are you against the war? You had all these different things going on, right? We had all of our racial tension and all the clashes of the civil rights movement coming to a head. You had generational clashes like we have now, right? Instead of millennials and boomers, it was boomers and their parents going on. Sexual revolution was in full swing. Woodstock, the hippies, and all those things were happening. It was a time of chaos and change, and people wondered, are we ever going to get out of the mess that we've made for ourselves? We could probably take it back even further and go to World War II and say that people were looking around at everything that was happening in the world with this great war, wondering, are we ever going to get out of the mess we made? We could go back to World War I. You could say the same thing. You could go back to the Civil War when everything was just falling apart and people said the same thing. Are we ever going to get out of the mess that we've made? And we could honestly make the same argument, I think, with our brother John here in the book of Revelation. At this point, John is the last living apostle of the 12. He's the last one left alive. He's been exiled to this island of Patmos. He's writing these letters to these seven churches. And of the seven, uh, five of the seven churches he's writing to are struggling spiritually. They're in a bad spot. Two of those seven churches, although they're doing well spiritually, they're being persecuted and they're suffering he knows about all the pressure and persecution that's coming for God's people or that has already come upon God's people at the hands of the Roman people. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, he identifies himself with these seven churches by saying that he was their brother and their partner in the tribulation and the patient endurance in the kingdom that are in Jesus. So in other words, he makes clear to them that the tribulation is an ongoing thing. It began when Jesus ascended and that they are living in it at the time of the writing. You and I are currently living in it right here, right now, and we will live in it until he returns to right all wrongs and to make everything new. And ultimately, that's what we have to remember. The reason that Revelation is in your Bible is not so that you can go home today and open up your newspaper and be like, well, look right there what Kamala's doing, right? She's in the Bible. It's not so that you can go and map out everything that's going to happen. No, Revelation is in our Bible to comfort Christians living in the tribulation. Christians who find themselves exiled from their homeland, 
Christians who need the assurance that no matter how difficult things get here on this earth, no matter how difficult things get living in the empire, right? And we are living in the empire, the empire of the world, that no matter how hard those things get, we have hope that nothing is beyond the control of our sovereign Lord God. And so chapter five is going to continue this theme of awe as we're going to see the worthiness of our Savior, Lord. Right? And so I think one of the best ways that you can look at this is that um, they're all spiritual, what's going on here. And remember what we said last week, these visions are not coming in historical order as if this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens so that we can put a timeline up and see. These visions are just in chronological order in the way that John received them. And so we can look at chapter four as if John is seeing what's currently happening in heaven right now with the elders and the creatures and everyone falling down, worshiping God the Father for his creation and for making creation and holding creation together. And then you can look at chapter five as if John is being privy to the plans that were laid down before the foundation of the world, okay? And so John's getting a vision of that. And so as we go through it, remember these bizarre symbols and stuff are not photographs. They're just symbols. They're things that John saw that symbolically refer to all the things that are happening in heaven right now. Okay? So Revelation chapter 5. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who was worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John sees a scroll. Scrolls in the hands of God the Father, and this scroll's covered in writing, but it's sealed shut. It's got a, a seal. Think of like a wax seal that would, that would be used to seal a letter. And this mighty angel stands up, and the angel asks, is there anyone worthy that can come and take this scroll from God the Father, break it open so that we can read the contents? Well, what are the contents? Very simple. The scroll contains the script for the great drama of human history. In other words, what is in that scroll is God's master plan for the salvation of sinners and for the overthrow of evil. And so God, so the angel asks, who's, who's worthy? Right, and John says he's, he's looking around, right? And, and, and he's like, Bueller, Bueller, right? Because nobody's worthy, right? Some of that was lost on some of you, but that was a good joke, okay? Right, and nobody's answering. And so John says that he's, he begins to weep. He's devastated because he's like, there's nobody who can step forward and take this scroll from God the Father. And listen, the reason he's devastated is this, is if the script is never read, if the drama of human history cannot proceed, if someone is not worthy to open it and read what happens so that it can proceed. So if the master plan's not revealed, God's purposes then seem to have failed. That's why John's heartbroken. It's because he's like, man, all those things you talked about, all those things that you told us, Jesus, that would happen, like if somebody can't read this, then none of those things can happen. Unless the script's read, all of humanity faces an aimless, purposeless existence. And so if you and I read these first four verses, and somewhere inside of us, we don't have that same reaction, then something is wrong with us. Because what we're saying is that we're okay with believing that there's just no script. 
that, that we're okay with believing that there's no plot line or there's no master plan, that you and I are just kind of floating along out there trying to find our place in this world, and maybe we will or maybe we won't. If the scroll is not open and read, then all of human history is just a pointless waste. It's as if God just started the machine, threw it out there, and let it go. And see, John's weeping and broken because he sees no one who can execute God's saving plan. And so at this point, John thinks that it looks as if Satan and evil and chaos are going to win the day. And so, so I want you to think about that, and, and let's look at it in two ways. I want you to look at it from a personal standpoint, and then look at it as a corporate church standpoint. So, so personally, if there's no point, if somebody can't open the scroll and read its contents, we're just floating out here. So that means everything that happens to you, whether good or bad, is just a waste of time. There's no purpose to it. There's no point to it. You have a cruel taskmaster up there who's just allowing bad things to happen to you and he doesn't really care. Six, ago, six years ago, this past Thursday, was the day that Mariah and I got our phone call that, that Lucy uh, was going to have SMA, right? Six years ago, you know, six years ago, poor Chad Wilkerson knew me for like two weeks and we're in Amarillo and I get that phone call, right? And he's like patting me on the shoulder, right? I just remember, like we barely knew each other. And so if you look at it from that standpoint, if no one's able to break open the scroll and read its contents, then, then everything that we've endured and everything that we've walked through is just pointless. That there is no hope that in the end, all that's happened to her will be undone and that one day she'll run and walk and be on the streets with Jesus, right? Everything that happens to you is no different. All your suffering, all your difficulty, all the pain that you have walked through and endured on this earth, if the script can't be read, it's pointless. It's purposeless. There is nothing out there for you. This is why John's broken, okay? But, but let's look at it from a corporate standpoint. So, so remember our principle that this book was written to the seven churches, written to them for us. So these churches that would be reading this vision, they're persecuted, they're struggling under a brutal regime in a fallen, sinful world. And so if no one can open the scroll and bring history to an end, then their existence as a church is meaningless. It's pointless. Like, why would they gather to worship? Why would they continue to meet under the threat of persecution if, nobody, if this thing isn't going anywhere? Okay, no different for us. If this thing is not headed anywhere, then we should have just kept this thing shut down last year, a year ago, and never opened it back up. I mean, what's the point of gathering together corporately to sing, to praise Jesus, to hear his word taught, to pray, to be around one another if this thing's just, nothing's happening. It's not going anywhere. We might as well just keep it shut down. See, if there's no master plan for the redemption of mankind, if God has just lost control of the narrative, then it's all worthless and it's all pointless. This is why John's devastated at this point. I need you to feel the weight of that because it's so, so heavy what's happening, right? Look at verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the lamb and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Someone's going to pause right there, right? Seven horns just would signify he's all powerful. 
that there is nothing or no one who can stand against him. Seven eyes means that he is uh, all seeing, he's omniscient, he knows all, that there's nothing hidden from his sight, right? And the seven spirits would just indicate completeness, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are complete, they are one in one another, they need no one else, okay? That's all that that means, so, so don't kinda get hung up on all that. And then in verse seven, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So he's crying. Nobody can open the scroll. Nobody can read the drama of human history. And I love this because one of the elders comes over and he taps him on the shoulders and he said, weep no more. John, look up. And John looks up and there's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he said, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it seals. This is scriptural. We read these this morning. In Genesis 49.9, Judah is a lion's club from the prey. My son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The root of David is found in Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So in other words, both these Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. This is what that elder's saying is that, hey, look up, there he is. He's the one who can do it. And I love it because John looks up and he turns and he's hoping he's gonna see this lion, this triumphant Messiah. And what does he see? It's a surprise. It should be a surprise because the person appears symbolically in the form of an animal and it's not a lion, but it's a lamb. So don't get confused, the lion and the lamb are the same person. They're the same thing. The lamb is pointing to Jesus' as atoning sacrifice. But John says this lamb's standing as though it had been slain, or literally the Greek is that he's standing as he had been slaughtered. So the lamb is up on his back haunches, and his throat is cut, and it's bleeding. And this lamb standing between the throne, that means he's close to the throne. And he comes up and he takes the scroll from the Father's right hand. That's consistent with what the New Testament says of Jesus, right? That he is where? Seated at the Father's right hand. And so what makes this lion, who's a lamb, worthy when this mighty angel, this mighty angel isn't? Well, first off, we must remember is that this lamb, who's also a lion, created that angel. And not only that angel, but he created all the angels. But the main reason he's worthy is because he's the one who conquered. See, just dying didn't make Jesus worthy. We have to remember that. Two thieves on either side of him also died, but they weren't worthy. No, it's because of the sinlessness of his death and that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again. He conquered. That's why he's worthy. See, that's why this lamb is seen standing. The lamb isn't slumped over. The lamb's not limping, but the lamb stands as a sign of resurrected life. That he's screaming that Jesus conquered, but he's not dead. He's still alive. And this is the mystery of the universe, folks. Listen, Jesus is why there's something rather than nothing. God created the universe not only through Jesus, but listen, God created the universe for Jesus. So this means that everything in this world exists to bring glory to this Jesus. So this picture of Jesus, the Lion of Judah who conquered through his death and resurrection should produce joy in your heart. See, it's through his blood that one day you and I can be a part of the scene in heaven. And it's not because you're worthy, right? What did you say? There was found nobody 
in heaven or on earth who was worthy to take the scroll. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we're awesome. It's not because of our good deeds, but it's because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that you and I one day can have a place in heaven. And because of Jesus, we're not wandering aimlessly on this earth. Instead, the reason you exist, the reason I exist, is that we exist to bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week. But everything that we have been given is so that we can take those blessings and turn those back around so that we can tell others about this Jesus, about this lion who was slain or this lamb who was slain. He's given us those things to point others to this Jesus. And so when we read passages like this, it should produce awe and wonder in our hearts so that when we leave here, our hearts are fooled and stirred to go out and tell everybody else about this Jesus, okay? So look at verse eight. It says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So we said this last week, but Alistair Begg reminds us that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. So the main plain things that these creatures do, that these elders who are representative of the entire historic church do, is just like last week. They fall down and they worship the one who was slain. And it says that these elders bring bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of saints. This is, this is a great picture for you and I, because it shows how God receives our prayers right? That our prayers are a sweet smelling odor to him. So don't ever be afraid to take your request to the Lord because he receives those and he gladly loves to hear them. And then it says that they sing a new song. It's a reference to chapter four. In chapter four, the song was one of creation. He's worthy of praise because of, of what he's, he's done in creating and making all things. But here in chapter five, they sing a song of redemption, so the lamb's defeated the powers of evils. He's brought about a new creation and he's worthy of praise because he has died. And then I love this part. And because of his blood, he's ransomed people from every corner of the earth. Every corner of the earth. So the number four in the Bible is used to reference the whole earth. So, so in the book of Isaiah, we have four corners of the earth. There, there's four winds of the heavens in Zechariah. And here, look what it, what it, what it shows us in, in verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. Uh, it's, it shows us that there are, there are four uh, terms used to describe tribe, language, people, and nation. So in other words, he has ransomed people from everywhere, from the entire world, and he's ransomed them all without distinction. Okay? Let's be clear on that. It's not without exception, because not everyone will trust in the Lord, but he has ransomed everyone without distinction. See, the gospel levels all notions of racial superiority because it declares that all people stand in need of the exact same savior. And I think it's important that we hear this, all right? Now listen to me. I know after the last year and some of the things that we've went through that some of you are tempted to roll your eyes and you're mentally rolling your eyes at me right now, all right? But I need you to hear this, that this is not 
the idea of racial reconciliation according to Black Lives Matter or according to critical race theory, right? Those things are used as a way to divide and push away and not as a way to unite. This is racial reconciliation according to the Bible and that is the only way that it'll ever happen, folks. That's it. That's the only way that we level that playing field. So in other words, what this verse tells us is that God loves ethnic diversity, and that this verse makes clear that the purpose of Christ's sinless life, substitutionary death and resurrection is to have a redeemed bride for his son of all people groups in the world. So the purpose is that they will live and worship in Christ-centered harmony. Verse 10 says that the purpose is that we would become a kingdom of priests. And that kingdom of priests, it doesn't mean that none are more priests than others. That all rule and reign, none more than others. So it doesn't mean that white Christians are one kingdom of priests and black Christians are another kingdom of priests or that Latinos constitute their own little kingdom and Arab Christians constitute their own little kingdom. No, we are all, regardless of ethnicity, one kingdom of priests. And we cannot have a God-glorifying kingdom if we despise one another over racial differences. We cannot so when you or I harbor dislike, disdain, or suspicion towards a person of a different skin color, and you've done it, I've done it, we are guilty. Or listen, white folks, when you harbor dislike, disdain, or suspicion toward a person of a different socioeconomic background, right? I've got a buddy that pastors in a town that's 99% Anglo, and he says, I promise you that town is divided down the middle and you have people on this side of town and they look down in disdain on people on this side of town. We're guilty of that as well. When we do that, we're blaspheming our God. We're spitting on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and we're making weak the power of God to redeem men and women of all ethnicities made in his image. And listen again, that is the only reconciliation that really matters. So here's what it means for you and I in this church. It means that we need a long for a diverse church that looks like the community that we live in. That should be our goal, church, is that we should be a representative of this community. And we should long to see that happen. We need to be an example of all the spearmen that there's redemption and reconciliation found at the foot of Christ's cross because when we do, we're just gonna mirror what heaven looks like. Heaven's diverse. We should long for that here in our church. So that means that we need to share the love of Jesus with everybody that we come in contact with. I've had this conversation multiple times lately with a lot of different people. But we have to become a more intentional people, church. We have to. One of the things that saddens me more than anything is the fact that we're not baptizing people. And we look around and we go, yeah, our church is growing. It's great. But it's growing from people who are already Christians, right? And, and I'm thankful for that. I am not saying that's a bad thing. We're glad that that's happening. But eventually we're gonna run out of other Christians and we're gonna have to go out there and get people that don't know Jesus. And so what that means is, is I'm preaching my guts out. What are you doing? Are we sharing the love of Jesus with the people that we come in contact with every day out in the streets? 
Have we got it through our heads yet that not everybody in Spearman, just because they say they're a Christian, right, and they can tell you, well, I went to VBS and got saved at six years old, doesn't mean they're a Christian. They may not know Jesus. And so we need to be a people that evangelized. We, we need to fill that baptistry and begin baptizing people who were lost, but now they're found, right? And the way that that happens is that we go back to Revelation 5 and we begin to worship this God. We begin to worship this Jesus who was worthy to take the scroll, who died and who's risen again. Because when we do that, that changes our hearts and we can't help but tell others about Jesus, right? Look what happens in verse 11. So because of what this lamb has done, starting in verse 11, they begin to worship and then it just kind of ripples out to all of creation. He says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So we have myriads and myriads of thousands and thousands. So ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands more. It's like this roar of angels begins to praise the Lamb. In verse 13, we see that it extends out to every creature on heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea. So, so this would just be this deafening sound of praise for the only one who's worthy to take history into his hands. He's the only one that's worthy of this kind of praise. And so if chapters four and five are in our Bibles to produce awe in our hearts, if we don't know who God is and how he thinks and how he feels and how he's in control of all history, how he has a definitive plan, not only for history but for you, then how can we worship and celebrate this God? We need to know who he is. See, that's why we have to be students of the word, right? So we don't read the Bible just to have cool head knowledge so that we can impress our friends with all the cool things that we know. No, our joy comes from what we know and believe to be true about God. So the worship that takes place in heaven results from their knowledge of God and who he is, and it's the grounds for their worship. So the ultimate goal of our Bible study, and our ultimate goal of hearing preaching, our ultimate goal of knowing theology isn't knowledge, but worship. So as we said last week, that when we see that, that our God is bigger than we can imagine, beyond our wildest dreams, then that changes the way that you and I live. Then we leave this place in worship, and as we go and as we're worshiping, we tell others about this God. We get the focus off of ourselves and on this God who reigns over human history. And we realize that this God is the only one worthy to take the scroll of human history into his hands and see that history unfolds precisely as he has it planned. So remember, written to them for us. Think of the comfort that this would be to these seven churches. Their world's falling apart. Persecution's ramping up. Things are changing rapidly but yet John assures them that the lamb who was slain has not lost control of the narrative. 21st century Christian, how comforting is that? Things are changing, right? Who knows what's gonna happen? A lot of us are freaking out, but God's like, nah, man, I got this. I haven't lost control of the narrative. My son broke the, broke the, broke the seal and opened the scroll. We know exactly how this thing's gonna go. This is the God that you serve. 
This is what makes this God worthy of worship and praise. This is what makes him worthy of your wholehearted allegiance. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who's also the lamb. Jesus is both. And I love what Sam Storm says, because he tells us in this juxtaposition of lion and lamb, there's a cause for rejoicing. And listen, I quote him as I close today. Sam says this, that the lion who wields power and strength that none can resist is also the lamb who walked this earth in weakness and suffering, resisting none. The lion who rules the world and governs its every move is also the lamb who was meekly led to slaughter by his enemies. The lion who is known for his uncompromising commitment to righteousness is also the lamb who overflows in love to sinners like you and me. The lion who commands total obedience from everyone is also the lamb who in his earthly life submitted himself in obedience to the law of God. The lamb who is holy and pure beyond our wildest imagination is also the lamb who is gracious and kind and tenderhearted to all. The lion who, would, who could silence a raging storm with a single word is also the lamb who refused to speak or revile against those who nailed him to a cross. The lion who is life itself is also the lamb who willingly dies for his enemies. The lion who is himself infinite holiness and righteousness and purity and power is also the lamb who welcomes broken sinners into his presence and makes intimate friends of his enemies. The lion who, as Paul says in Philippians 2, exists from all eternity in perfect equality with the Father and the Spirit, equal in all respects as to his divinity, is also the lamb who in time and history humbled himself and took on the likeness of sinful men and women. The lion who drove robbers and thieves out of the temple is also the lamb who only days later allowed those very robbers and thieves to nail him to a cross. The lion who rightly burns with wrath against rebellious and the unbelieving is also the lamb who in the place of the rebellious and unbelieving endured in his own body and soul that very wrath. So do you know this lion who's also the lamb? Have you trusted in him today to forgive your sins? And listen, the Bible says that all that is required of you is to repent and believe. Repent of all the ways that you're trying to save yourself. Repent of all the ways that you're trying to be your own God and trust in Christ for what you can't do. And when you do that, he promises to cleanse you of your sins, to forgive you and to make you new. Do you know this lion who's also the lamb? And Christian, this passage is the reason you exist the purpose of history contained in this scroll is that you and I would glorify, honor, and exalt our God by finding in his love, his beauty, his grace, and his power the deepest delight of our hearts. And Christian, this is your God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for all that you've given us, and I thank you that Revelation 5 has been given to us. that the line of the tribe of Judah who is also the lamb who was slain is worthy to take the scroll, to break the seal and to read its contents. In other words, Father, you have not lost control of the narrative. So that means for those of us who are going through difficulty and who are, are suffering right now, that there's a plan and a purpose to it, that our difficulties and our sufferings were overseen by you, they were ordained by you and that you were guiding us through those and that, Father, we have hope that, that it may not be righted in this life, but one day, because of what you're doing, all will be made new. And we can worship in that. We can, we can glory in that. 
I pray that we would be a people that would be filled with awe so that when we leave here, that our lives would be lives of worship and that we would exist to tell others about this wonderful, glorious Savior. And finally, if there's anyone in here that does not know you, that's never trusted in you, that today as the gospel has been preached, I pray, Father, you have opened hearts to hear and receive the gospel and that people would put their faith and trust in you. And that they would tell somebody today, they would grab me or Joe and say, hey, I, I wasn't a Christian when I came in here, but today something's changed. And I've trusted in Jesus. And that, Father, today would be the day of great rejoicing for them in new life. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for how faithful you've been to us over the last year. Help us to always remember that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand.